The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. Do you want a beautiful lawn? Enter True Green, the easiest way to get a great lawn. Just water and mow and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and more. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. And they have a verified best price, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com, T-R-U-G-R-E-E-N.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people. Guaranteed. Welcome to Talk is Jericho. It is the pot of thunder and rock and roll. And are you ready to rock with Fozzie? The Save the World Tour starts tomorrow, March 31st, in Chesterfield at Diesel. That's close to Detroit. We're very excited about that. The show is going to be packed. Then on uh, April 1st, on Friday, we are in Fort Wayne at the famous Pierre's. Saturday in Aurora at the Piazza. That's going to be a great show. Sunday in Ashwaubenon at the Epic Event Center. And then we uh, wrap up this uh, first little leg on the 4th on Monday in Kansasville, Wisconsin. More dates to follow the week following after that and so on and so on and so on. Go to FozzyRock.com for all information. And don't forget, April 11th in New York at Irving Plaza. It's our gold record presentation party. Uh, it's going to be amazing to get that, uh, that plaque for Judas going gold. It's a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to be a part of this, so we invite our entire New York family to Irving Plaza on April 11th for the Judas Gold Record uh, presentation. And, of course, we'll be playing as well. So it's going to be one of the greatest concerts in Fozzie Rock history in New York. We've got such a great history there. So all the dates, once again, New Haven, Portland, Hampton Beach, Providence, Asbury Park, Stroudsburg, Wilmington, Poughkeepsie, Leesburg, etc., etc., etc. Go to FozzyRock.com for all information for tickets and for our VIP meet and greet, one of the best of the business. We play a five-song mini set for you before the show, and you're not going to uh, hear some of these songs later on that night. So we do it for you, and we're super excited to be back on the road again. Don't forget, of course, our new song, I Still Burn, available for streaming now on all services, Spotify, Apple, Amazon, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And also don't forget about ChrisJerichoCruise.com for the uh, four-leaf clover. It's going to be huge. Chris Jericho's Rock and Wrestling Ranger at Sea, the fourth voyage. Once again, ChrisJerichoCruise.com setting sail February 2nd with a killer lineup of talent. Uh, and we stop at our own private island this time. we got a new island, new talent, new cruise. Go check it out, ChrisJerichoCruise.com. It is the vacation of a lifetime. And uh, I think 12 of the levels are already sold out. I think there's still 11 uh, levels of cabins remaining. So go get yours now. Do not be left out. And don't be left out today about a brand new wrestling documentary on YouTube called Woody Farmer's Bay Area Wrestling, all about uh, Woody's local wrestling promotion based in Newark, California, just east of San Francisco, run by promoter Woody Farmer. And he had all kinds of talent come through in the early 90s, including a young Chris Jericho. 
I did three matches there in the summer of 1992 and got the exposure on Sports Channel America, which is why I went down there. Just one of the stories I tell in the new doc. I'm featured in it. You hear how that happened, the beginnings of my career and how uh, getting to work for Woody was a kind of a small break for me. Uh, lots of my memories from my short time at Barrier Wrestling. I talk about it in the documentary and I talk about it today here on Talk is Jericho. Woody had a TV deal for Bay Area Wrestling. They taped their shows right in a small studio at the TV station. A crazy story. I got a lot of the guys here today to share it, uh, Bay Area Wrestling alumni, including the documentary filmmakers as well, Paul Ponte and uh, Jesus Cruz, along with Pat Kelly, the voice of Bay Area Wrestling, and Bay Area wrestler Shane Cody, who is also Woody's son, although that was highly kayfabe back when I was there. Between us, you hear how this promotion got started, why they landed such a sweet TV deal in Sports Channel America almost before they were up and running, how I discovered Bay Area Wrestling, my time there, my memories there, who I wrestled, the stories of the matches that I had, and some of the other great talent that uh, wrestled there as well, like Johnny May Young, yes, the May Young. I uh, had a uh, confrontation with her in Bay Area Wrestling. Mike Lockwood, a.k.a. Crash Holly, Radical Robbie Lee, so many more. It's a great uh, story of a local territory that had something uh, to do with the uh, the success that I later had in wrestling. So thanks to everybody at Bay Area Wrestling. Thanks to Woody Farmer. And thanks to you for listening to Woody Farmer's Bay Area Wrestling right here, right now on Talk is Jericho. All right, so um, I watched a documentary over the last uh, a few weeks about Bay Area Wrestling. Now, Bay Area Wrestling was a company that I worked for very briefly in the summer of 1992. And I wanted to talk about that and, and the documentary and, and the amazing history behind this company. So uh, Paul Ponte is here and Jesus Cruz, who made the uh, movie. And then Pat Kelly, who was the great ring announcer and color commentator on the show. And then, of course, Shane Cody, who was one of the top stars of Bay Area Wrestling and the son of the promoter, Woody Farmer, a very famous name, especially in the Northern California a wrestling scene. First of all, I guess I'll start with you, Paul. How did you get the idea to start working on this documentary and putting it all together? So uh, me and Jesus Cruz here have been uh, recording, doing websites, photography for indie promotions across uh, Northern California, including All Pro Wrestling and specifically Big Time Wrestling, which Shane Cody was wrestling in. And we always heard them talk about Bay Area Wrestling and the stories behind it and all the people that passed through it, including yourself and Mikey Lockwood, a.k.a. Crash Holly, Mula, Mae Young. And uh, Jesus really is the one who decided, you know, we have all this footage. We have all this story to tell. So we thought it would make for a pretty compelling piece. Yeah, back in 1997, when I was going to school at the TV station where the wrestling took place, uh, the TV station offered classes for high school students, so I jumped on it, and sure enough, the first couple of weeks I was there, uh, Shane Cody's dad was still doing a couple of like one-offs here and there in the studio, along with the promoter called Kirk White, uh, rest in peace, here in Big Time God, Wrestling. Yeah. God bless you. Um, so yeah, they would, that was my first introduction to television, was working in wrestling, and then when I found out the history of Bay Area Wrestling in that particular studio, it definitely piqued my interest, and I just started asking around, and... Shane Cody had all the footage still from, from that time. So you owned all that footage, obviously, Shane. That was like your family's uh, treasure sort of thing, right? Yeah, more or less. And then when the cable station ended up shutting down, I went down there and grabbed all the rest of the footage that was there. 
Which is amazing because back in those days, there was a little bit of a proclivity, especially in the 70s and 80s, of just erasing the tapes and putting the new shows over top of it. So it's, it's lucky that you were able to grab as much of it as you did, Shane. Yeah, it was, uh, I probably had a couple hundred tapes there. A lot of it that I couldn't even get to because I still have a wrestling ring sitting in my garage. And it's all in the back. Yeah, there's, he's got boxes and filing cabinets full of tapes. And, and these, are, these are the old school three-quarter inch tapes that not a lot of, there's not mm. a lot of decks around, but since I've, worked in broadcasting for since 97 i have access to stations that still have this technology which allowed me to to digitize all this footage and so how did you because i still have the the bay area wrestling ring still sitting in my garage <laughs> all these years <laughs> when did the company uh, shut down basically 93 I think yeah i think the, the very the very beginning of about this time in in 1993 january or february but then they would Got have it. like one-offs. They had live shows sure. at other places. Yeah. Right. So how did you put together kind of the list of guys that you wanted to talk to, Paul? Because, I mean, you got we have Pat and Shane here, but there's a whole list of guys that you were able to talk to from that era. Was it easy to find them all? Had you been in contact with them at some point in time? Well, a lot of them, uh, luckily, they, they remained in contact, not necessarily all the time. That, that footage you see in the beginning of the documentary when they're seeing each other, that's the first time a lot of them have seen each other in over 10 years. It's a real moment. That moment when Pat Kelly comes up and he says, you know, this sorry group of mother <laughs> like That's a real moment. That's the first thing he said when he walked up. That wasn't staged. That was just how it went down. So basically just, you know, throughout like friends of friends. Although we had a few people hit us up after the documentary came out and said you should have interviewed us. But yeah. Now, were you guys fans of Bay Area? Is that how you got the idea to, to do this? Paul and Jesus? Yeah. I mean, yeah. Like I said, the station that we were in, uh, we kind of could not not see it. You know, it's just there right in front of us. And then, so I just look at these old tapes and I'd just be mesmerized. Like, Oh wow. You guys had Mae Young here. And of course I knew Mae Young at the time <laughs> from Bubba Ray Dudley power bombing her off the, off the, the little runway there. But uh, yeah. yeah. So it was like, dude, this is amazing. It, it's amazing that it happened in this little small town of Newark, California. It's like, you know, Chris Jericho ended up here, you know, it's just mm -hmm. kind of like unbelievable. Let's kind of go back to the beginning of this. Pat, how did you get involved with this company and becoming the, the announcer and the voice of the show? What happened with my story there is actually how I met Woody Farmer. And uh, I was working at a radio station, Stockton, California. A promoter came into town. This is 1986. And uh, this is just when all the territories had dissolved. Uh, wrestling was going through this renaissance, hugely popular. And a promoter comes into town and he's going to be running a show at the Stockton Civic Auditorium. I tell him how I was a fan, uh, my first time at wrestling at Cow Palace in San Francisco, not too far from where we're sitting right now, uh, Ray Stevens and Pepper Gomez in the main event. I would go on to work with both of those gentlemen later on in life, which is kind of <laughs> ironic. So I show up at the Civic Auditorium. It's sold out, 4,500, 5,000 people. It's my first night in the business, and the card is is fairly stellar. It's Superstar Billy Graham, Rocky Johnson, Jimmy Snuka, Playboy Buddy Rose, and I'm probably forgetting a few names, and Woody Farmer and uh, Rex Farmer, a.k.a. Shane Cody. After mm -hmm. the matches, uh, Woody walks up to me and he says, well, Pat, great job tonight. How come I, I haven't seen you before in the business? How come we haven't had run into each other? And I told Woody, it was, uh, I go, well, this is it, my first night in the business. He goes, well, you 
belong in this business. And he said, I've got a, a promotion. I put some shows together now and then. Would you ring announce for me? Certainly I would. Other promoters were there that night. I began ring announcing for them, other indie promoters. And then um, I worked uh, with Woody and with Shane for a couple of years. And then uh, along about 88, 89, uh, Bay Area Wrestling was starting, and so that was my uh, first exposure to broadcasting wrestling on television. And and I had to, you know, go back to people that that I enjoyed. Influences for me, uh, guys like Gene Okerlund, Jim Ross is probably in there, Gordon Soley, and I, I tried to just be an amalgam of them and go on the air and do the best mm-hmm. I could. Now, this area where you're talking about Newark and Hayward and Northern California, kind of the San Francisco area, obviously wrestling was super popular for many years with Roy Shire's territory. And Shane, did you uh, grow up in the area? Was Woody working for Roy Shire? Was he traveling a lot? Were you kind of like a part of a traveling family? Or how was that for you growing up with Woody as your father? Chris, I've been around it my whole life. Uh, I got to travel with my dad from, I don't know, five years old to 12 every summer. Mm -hmm down in Texas, Oklahoma, North South Carolina, Mexico. He did work for Roy, but he had a his own company down here that was a piano moving company. And mm. he didn't want to wrestle for Roy too much because it was he was running into too many issues with when they'd go to moves and stuff like that. People wanted to fight. <laughs> so That's um, great. he slowed down. He worked for Roy, but... Well, he, he worked for every single promoter out there, to tell you the truth, you know. Mm. Just what such good times and re- memories and stuff like that growing up. Never thought that I'd be getting into the business later on in life. Texas was, I just remember like Dickie Murdoch, Killer Carl Cox, Haystack Calhoun, a lot of memories with those guys. I used to, uh, a couple times when I was in Smoky Mountain Wrestling, travel with Dick Murdoch, and he uh, had a, a superpower where he could throw a beer bottle out the window and hit a speed limit sign every time. He'd be like, he never yeah. missed. The, the guys were a lot more characters back in those days for yeah. sure. <laughs> so how how did talking about Bay Area the, the TV show how did that kind of all come to be? I mean, Pat, you said that the that you started working there in about '89 or so. What was Woody's idea behind Bay Area and getting it on TV? Was it hard to get a spot? And, and kind of tell us about how it started off. Woody had a talk show on a local cable station out of the Newark uh, Union City area. As I described earlier uh, in the podcast here, when wrestling started to become popular, that producer, I believe his name was Kurt, he asked Woody, well, you've got this wrestling school and you go around doing these spot shows. Do you think we could put a little show together? So Woody goes, well, yeah, I got the announcer. I got the boys. I think we can do that. I got the ring. And we started doing it in uh, in the studio, which was another cool thing about Bay Area Wrestling, it was it was a studio production. And uh, then Sports Channel picked us up. And somebody from Sports Channel contacted Woody and said, uh, why don't you send us a couple of audition tapes? That took a while, uh, Shane. We we sent probably four or five audition tapes to them. Yeah. Uh, before, and, and, and I'm saying tapes because they were tapes back then. Yeah, uh, right. And, and then finally they said, yeah, this looks good. 
In, in fact, there was a time when I was just the ring announcer and the interviewer, and I wasn't doing play-by-play. I wasn't doing any commentary. Producer at Sports Channel said, well, how about the, this guy seems to be, a, because I was in broadcasting for about four or five years before I started in wrestling. And uh, one of the producers at the Sports Channel said, well, well how about this Pat Kelly guy? Uh, he seems to be able to talk. Why don't we put him at ringside for commentary and that's how I became the interviewer, ring announcer, and uh, a commentator at ringside. Before you knew it, we were on every Saturday night on the Sports Channel. Well, that's something that you guys kept saying uh, on the documentary, and, and, and you made a great point of it, was that there was television. And television was currency back at that time. I mean, it still is, but back in the early 90s, if you weren't really in the WWF, there was really not a lot of TV to be on. So the fact that you guys had a weekly show kind of was very valuable at that point in time. It was definitely a, a, a jumping off point for a, for a lot of guys, yourself included, that went on to have careers uh, in, in the business, as I did. I, I still own a promotion, a local prom- promotion that's based here in Northern California these days, PWA, Pro Wrestling Alliance. So, mm-hmm. uh, so I still have my hand in the business. I, I went on. I was on a, a show on the Fox station in Portland, Oregon for a number of years. There was a failed network show that was going to be on... Uh, the pop TV network, Paragon Pro Wrestling, uh, that never really got off the ground. But uh, but it was a springboard for me as well. So a lot of us came out of that three-year period really with uh, a lot of experience that was valuable to us as, as we carried it on into other ventures and, and other pr- promotions and broadcasts. The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also, 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. kind of explain what the reach of Sports Channel America was for Bay Area, the different areas that they were uh, broadcast in because of, the, of, of that affiliate. It was the western states, uh, western part of California, southern California, uh, Washington, Texas, was it parts of Texas? Mm-hmm. It had the local appeal, which was Newark. It only aired in Newark locally, but then when Sports Channel came in, they were able to broadcast to half a dozen western states. It was really like this this odd thing where like the territories were over, but there was this still like this one remnant on television, this like mm-hmm. territory that covered the whole West Coast, and so it was almost <laughs> like, you know, I feel like later on, like like the NWA nowadays, they when they made their YouTube studio show, that was the kind of thing they were trying to replicate. You know, the in the small studio mm-hmm. interviews, wrestling interviews, wrestling, and this was like the last moment of that before when that went away. Then finally, they all went away. But I feel like Barry Wrestling was really like this last grasp of that of that moment. What I found very interesting is the fact that a lot of these guys, like uh, Jason Rogers, a.k.a. Jason Styles, Super Diablo, this was all their first match ever, like their first time working mm. ever, and it's on television. So it like, so there was a lot of mistakes. There was a lot of uh, uh, nervousness when people were doing interviews and promos. So I always thought that was amazing. Like, you're just starting in the business, and then boom, now you're on television, you know, maybe only a couple months into your training, which I think is insane. 
Yeah, and that's kind of what what drew me down there was like, like I said in the documentary that my dad was dating his now wife, who for some reason just ended up in Palo Alto. So he said that he saw this wrestling show on the Super Channel or Sports Channel America, out of you know Newark Hayward, and so I thought like, well, I have nothing going on this summer, so I had I had one trip to Japan, so I was able to get enough points to get a ticket to fly down to San Francisco. And that was kind of the idea why I went to see, like, if I figured if I could be on Sports Channel America, maybe WWF will see me or, or who knows what could happen. But at least it's television. And that's more than what I have right now, which is basically doing nothing. So it was a real beacon to go down and, and be a part of that, of, the, of that company and that show. Uh, and that studio was very small, wasn't it, Shane? Yeah, after we got the ring in there... <laughs> Oh, probably about 75 people we'd be able to squeeze in there. And right. yeah. I mean, it was just uh, just a hassle just getting the ring in, in and out of the place. <laughs> yeah, but it was, so, it was tight corners. Chris, I know you're really savvy with, with the television production in, in the world of wrestling. And the one thing that, that I noticed that I didn't think of at the time, but I in watching the trailer for the documentary and then in watching the hour-long finished piece that got released about a month ago or a week ago was that the hard cam was up in a corner yeah. of the studio. I have never, ever seen that before <laughs> in any studio wrestling. <laughs> and we had the handheld, and that, that worked very well. But the hard cam stuck up in a corner? Are you kidding me? There wasn't a lot of room for it anywhere else, though. Exactly. No. You know? Yes. You need a pretty wide-angle lens if you wanted to have it on level with the with the ring. <laughs> yeah, I remember walking out of the curtain, uh, and there's one row of people and the ring. So, like you, like Shane said, you have to wedge yourself kind of around to kind of get around the people. And then I remember when I stood on the top rope, either I could touch the roof or I put my head through the roof at some point, jumping off because it was that low. <laughs> <laughs> and at the at the commentators' table. There was no monitor. There, there was a small television there, so it looked good on TV, but it was never on. It was always dark. <laughs> and, and the other thing was, Chris, is that I and, and Alan Bolte, who did a great piece on you in, in Wrestling World Magazine back you then, yeah. who would come in and do color commentary every now and then, and Alan and I uh, are good friends, we had no headphones so mm. we actually had to, you know, like cup our ears so we could hear what was <laughs> being what we were saying over the ring noise and the ambient noise from the fans. <laughs> it wasn't it wasn't the best, but we made it do for three years and had fun with it. So who would do like the editing of the shows? Because I know we, we we I say we because I was there. You taped every two weeks. And my time there, I was at two separate tapings, which we can discuss later. So would you do the two weeks of tapings, then instantly have to edit and produce the show to be released the next night? Or how, how much of a turnaround was there? Do you guys remember that? Yeah, the production team was part of the, the TV studio. So they, uh, the producer was Curtis Denisar, who ended up being my teacher in broadcasting. And then their employees would edit it together. I forgot the name of the production company that they went by. Shooting-wise, though, how many times a week did you guys shoot? Uh, we shot uh, the first and third Friday of every month. Okay. Right. And and we would do – how many shows? that We would do four shows. Four shows out of there, yeah. We would do four shows that, that night. We were always about four weeks out having shows in the can mm. and, and, and ready to air on the sports channel. And then how would you get people in there? How did you attract the fans? 
we'd go to the pizza parlor next door and say, did you want to see some, some wrestling tonight? We're doing a show. Didn't have to do that every time. But I remember, what, what, actually, once we got on uh, Sports Channel and uh, started attracting fans to both our house shows and the, the television tapings, they, they would be lined up outside. And, and uh, I think for a modicum amount of money, they could get in and buy a ticket and you know be on that row of people that you used to run in front of. <laughs> to, to get into the ring so but at first we had to scratch for people and we got them in there <laughs> the longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards the longest field goal ever missed also 76 yards why bring this up because knowing your limits matters both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70 yard field goal it probably won't go well so set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. What was Woody's kind of uh, idea behind the show, Shane? Like, was he wanting to become a bigger promoter? Did he just like the idea of having this show on TV? What was kind of his end game in putting it all together? I don't think he wanted to get any bigger. I think he was, he wanted to put on shows and the TV. He never talked to me about going bigger or anything else. I mean, mm -hmm. did the TV and then we do, you know, house shows and stuff like that. But um, we just played it step by step, you know. There really wasn't a business plan no, ever no. put in place <laughs> because I was on that end of it a little bit. I would come up with ideas that, okay, we should uh, set up a series of spot shows in towns where we air and we'll make it a little tour and we'll be out like two or three nights a week and we'll gain revenue from that. We'll gain potential sponsors for the show on the sports channel. Woody had a, had a business person that worked in his office, both in the piano moving company and in Bay area wrestling who just, uh, you know, shot down all of those ideas. So I, mm. I, I didn't take it personally. They just didn't want to implement them. So uh, that was the status quo. It's funny, I, like I said, like I don't remember who I contacted, but maybe it was a number on the TV screen or something. So when I finally got into town, I went to, I believe Hayward was where the, the school was, right? And that's what I kind of talk about in the documentary as well, as I showed up at the warehouse and I went in and I met, I met Woody, who was super friendly. And there was the, the blonde lady who you see in the background. I don't know if that was his Kathy assistant Kearney, or yeah. Kathy Kearney. She, she That's was the very, business uh, associate. Yeah, ah, yes, yes. She she wasn't very uh, friendly, shall we say. What a shock. No. What a shock. <laughs> yeah, no yeah. kidding. Woody. Chris, come on. Yeah. I thought you got along with everybody. But I'll tell you what, the Woody, like you said in the, in, in the documentary, just from what I remember, just a, a super nice guy. Really cool. And I think, obviously, too, who's this kid from Canada? I'm sure you had a million guys coming to try out. I think he figured out pretty quickly that I wasn't just some kind of a mark just hanging around. Because I, I did train in the dungeon with the Hart brothers. And I had gone to Japan, which, once again, was a big deal at the time. So he was really cool. And he said, listen, we just want to take a look at what you can do. So I went in the ring, and I mentioned there was a blonde referee. I don't know if you guys remember this Jack guy. Darnell. Jack yeah. Darnell. That's yeah. it. Yes, yeah, and he was yeah, also a worker, so he could do some more of the high-flying type stuff. And we must have impressed Woody because my first booking was against the champ, Shane Cody. That was the first match I had in the territory. And I was like, wow, I got a title shot already or whatever the hell it was. 
There was a, there's, a, there's another story that we didn't mention on it, but uh, Jason Rogers, a.k.a. Jason Styles, brought it up later that one day when you were training, you, Chris, uh, you were training with Tony Toa, which is a big Samoan guy, and I yeah. guess you, got, you were like – you were like doing some kicks to his head or something like that, and I guess you left a scuff mark on his forehead. Uh, so yeah, J- J- Jason Styles is cracking up. He's like, "Did he mention that?" I'm like, "No, he did it." I don't know. If, I don't know if he even remembers that. Knowing uh, knowing how how Shane worked, and then Woody being an old school brother, you guys probably liked that idea that I scuffed him in the forehead. <laughs> but that's so what do you crazy because Woody Woody Farmer was an old school promoter, but he, as Super Diablo says in the documentary, he really wanted to give chances to smaller guys, especially at that mm. time period. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, you're no, by no means these days, especially a smaller wrestler. But at the time I was, though. Sure. Exactly. At the time, you know, in the early 90s, late 80s, you know, they, not a lot of people were giving opportunities to smaller guys. Yeah. And Woody Farmer, mm-hmm. despite being, by, you know, an old school promoter, was really into having, you know, a more high flying, quick paced style in mix with all the old school style as well. Yeah, he, he had a, a big heart and he just wanted to help everybody out, you know. I uh, watched that match back. It's a cool thing. Like you said, you guys have all these matches. And I think all three of the matches that I had there, the first one was against Shane, second one was against Handsome Al, and the third one was against uh, the Spanish Hitman, which we'll talk about. But do you remember this match that we had, Shane? Have you ever seen it back? Uh, I've seen it quite a few times. <laughs> oh. And, uh, you know, Chris, it just you look back, to then and now i mean it's been what 30 years 30 years this and this you're, august you're yeah. still you're still going strong chris yeah uh very proud of you of what, everything you've done you. i mean rock and roll superstar wrestling oh, superstar thanks man amen and things that you've done is amen very impressive uh, yeah i remember going in there and not intimidated but i'm like oh this guy's you know he's he's, he's tough you know and i remember the match was was like a little hard hitting but it was it was fun and I, I i got hit with the cowbell at the end and that was that was the finish of it but i remember enjoying it that we had we had a, we had a good time if we would have had more matches it could have been even more kind of hard hitting but i, I remember working that match and having a good yeah, time with it says i was hard hitting i didn't think i was hard hitting back then <laughs> <laughs> I think you were. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Jesse Hernandez described you as stiff in the documentary. Oh, <laughs> as stiff. Yeah. One of the biggest pops from the documentary in your in your segment, Chris, uh, for the boys, the biggest pop is at the end where you say you're very grateful that you got the opportunity to wrestle three times for free. Yeah. And then, <laughs> that, that for free part just pops the boys every time. Yeah. Well, but like you, I think Shane said it in, in the movie as well, that there wasn't a lot of money ever at those tapings. I think everybody was working for free at that point in time or close to it, correct? Yeah, everybody That's was correct. working for free and everyone didn't have no issue at all to work for free, just trying to get themselves out there. Yeah, I, the TV and stuff. you know, th- this is something that we didn't talk about at the time, but when we had our little reunion, which is the day that we did all the, the ISOs, the interviews, uh, we started talking about how unique a snippet in time that was. And, and you've thought enough about it, Chris, to want to be included in, in the documentary and, and have us on this podcast, which is, is just a thrill for us and an honor for us. As we look back on it, we realized that, and we never put it in these words, but we realized that we showed up at the house shows we did and we showed up at the tapings that we did to put forth the best version of ourselves, mm-hmm. whatever we perceived that to be. And that transmuted from Woody somehow. I know that sounds a little spacey, but Woody was, he was a leader and mm-hmm. he was that type of leader that 
would draw that out of you. I wanted to be the best interviewer I could be, the best play-by-play guy, the best ring announcer. And, and I've probably never been any of those things in the business, but I know that I've done my best. And all of the wrestlers were, were the same way in creating their characters. You know, the mask, he used Jesse Ventura's line, well, let me tell you something, but he made <laughs> it his own. You know, uh, Robbie. Um, Robbie Lee. Uh, yeah, Robbie. Uh, Robbie Lee was an amalgam of George the Animal Steel and Bruiser Brody, and he mm. made that his own. And somehow we found our way to do that. Nobody talked about psychology back then, but mm-hmm. somehow we were able to develop that psychology and take it in front of the fans, and hopefully put that on television. Well, I know, I know, because you said you got that from Woody Farmer, and I feel like that's why. We didn't want to just call it Bay Area Wrestling. Uh, I know I can speak for Jesus when I say that. The reason we wanted to call it Woody Farmer's Bay Area Wrestling was because mm. it's not just a documentary about Bay Area Wrestling. It's also a tribute to Woody Farmer, the man, and the people whose lives he touched in this short-run promotion that, made, that meant a lot to a lot of people. Right. Well, another thing, too, that I really like about it when you look back and, and you, know, you mentioned the, the, the quote of doing those three matches for free. I was never, it wasn't like I got ripped off. I was never promised any money, nor did I ask for any money. Like I said, I flew myself in from Canada with the hopes of getting some more traction. And the way that it paid off for me, and, and you mentioned his name, was, was Alan Bolting. We talked about it in the documentary as well. Uh, he was writing for one of the magazines at the time, and I ended up getting a four or five page story in this national magazine that was currency once again i keep using that word but i could use that now to send it around to other promoters or even if i didn't send it to anybody people were reading the magazines going oh who's this guy and then suddenly when you go to you know smoky mountain wrestling or whatever it may be oh i I read about that guy in a magazine or whatever so it did pay off and it was worth way more than you know the 50 bucks that i might have got for doing the match my point is we were all doing it for the right reasons which is the, always the way to start anything successfully is if you do it for the right reasons and you do a good job, the money will follow you. If you do something just for the money, it's probably not going to pay off in the long run anyways. And working with Bay Area Wrestling did pay off in the long run for a lot of guys. And it, it, it's funny, the footprints and the tracks it's left years afterwards, I know surfaced in my career in the business because for a while I was doing this uh, – Paragon Pro Wrestling, which would shoot once a month in in Las Vegas, and and we'd be down, we'd fly in like a Wednesday or Thursday, and fly out Saturday, and and they flew in this one referee, like from the Midwest, and it was right when the video surfaced on YouTube of you, of your your match with you and Cody, and of course I'm introducing it, <laughs> and the first thing that I never met this referee, but you worked with Chris Jericho. <laughs> I mean, that's the first thing the guy says. He said, nice to meet you, you know. And so it, it's crazy how the Bay Area Wrestling, just that, that what Bay Area Wrestling was, has kind of followed us around all these years. Do you want a beautiful lawn? Enter True Green, the easiest way to get a great lawn. Just water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and more. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour, and they have a verified best price, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com, T-R-U-G-R-E-E-N.com, to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people. Guaranteed. So, Paul and, and Jesus, what was it like interviewing these, the guys 
after 30 years? And who were some of your favorite interviews, the characters that kind of stand out? It was very interesting to see because, for instance, uh, we had Danny Garcia and Super Diablo, two family members, one a lot more old school than the other. The older one, he would ask, answer questions in a way that he's still protecting the business. Still. <laughs> still very still very keen. Still to this day. And then, like, Super Diablo comes on, and he's literally like, well, we all know this is fake. We're all dancing around. We're having a good time. You know what I mean? Like, so he was a great it, – it was just great to see, like, the different ways that different people answered the same questions. We asked a lot of them the same questions to see what their take on it was. And for mm. him to have one be so completely, like, stone-faced, like – the business is real, brother. And then the other guy just like completely breaking kayfabe all over the place. That was great. It was great to hear Cody talk about uh, his father. Because uh, it's it's different to have a bunch of wrestlers who worked for a guy and liked a guy. And it's different to have a guy who literally was raised by him. That way you get more of a personal insight, which I think sometimes you don't get on some documentaries if you don't actually interview family members. It was a real highlight to interview him, especially because Cody, at a wrestling event, Cody's very much like... Uh, joking around, kind of not really get the, get too personal in the conversation. But there he was he was more willing to open up. And uh, it was really nice to see the side of Cody, this guy who I've seen wrestle since I was a kid mm-hmm. uh, in, you know, the Portuguese Hall in Newark, California, you know, <laughs> for years and years, you know. My favorite portion of the whole documentary is the Mae Young, the Mae Young part. I had a blast editing that, you know, the stories that the guys would tell and, and how all their stories coincided and then we call back Mae Young during your segment, Chris, when you was like, who is this old lady that keeps hitting me? <laughs> her panting sure, on the microphone. Yeah, her just, pa- uh, uh. Ex- explain that for people who haven't seen the documentary yet. Explain what you're talking about. Oh, so. The panting. Yeah, the panting. Um, <laughs> when she would see pain, the panting just got really worse and then, then it, it would get really heavy. As she it, was doing commentary. Yeah, it started out. Uh, uh, and then if she could see more pain going on, it'd be all, ah, ah. <laughs> then, 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 then they're starting to get phone calls back into the cable station about this lady panting on there. So we have to nicely had to take her off. But I mean, she was, when she was there, she was what, in her late 70s? And she was still taking bumps yep. down at the school. She was older tra- then than I am tra- now. Training women down there. And she was just such a tough. Lady, yeah. I mean, I couldn't see my grandma doing none, nothing what she was doing in those. <laughs> was, was she was she living in that area or something like that? Why? How did she get affiliated with Bay Area? Uh, she had family out here in San Leandro or San yes. Lorenzo. She was, uh, she had family out here in the Bay Area. Gotcha. But I think she was staying with Mula, and, and Mula would come out here and, and had a place out here, and they would share a residence from time to time here in the Bay Area as well. Gotcha. During that period, yeah. Yeah, I remember, like I said, that was the, the she was the the manager for the Spanish Hitman, and uh, I watched that match back, and it didn't turn out very well. There was a lot of mistakes and, and things like that, and I just remember like she was just kicking the shit out of me on the floor, and like, and I remember like, who is this lady, like, this crazy lady? Like I didn't, you know, this is pre May Young in the WWE. Like no one really knew unless she came from that area. And I remember she had on her forearm, which I saw years later, almost like a like an anchor, like a Popeye anchor, like some kind of a sailor tattoo like you said she's like a 70 year old lady i mentioned that to her years later one of the times when i was because she was always very friendly in wwe she was really nice lady and i said yeah i I wrestled with you in bay area wrestling with woody farmer and probably had no idea what i was talking about but she always loved talking about woody and and just being there and it was just like ah you know just like screaming and yelling but it was cool to see her 
10 years later after, oh, that's who that lady was. She was a legend. I get it now. <laughs> I mean, did you think in a small barrier school, you see a 70-year-old lady? And of course, you have aspirations to get bigger in the business. But did you think you would meet the 70-year-old lady in the WWE <laughs> 10 years later? No, but what I did, it all made sense because like back, you have to keep this in mind too. There was no Google back then or anything. So you could just Google, you know, Mae Young and see her whole history. And also her name was Johnny Mae Young. And I think I forgot the man. I was telling people that Johnny Young, it's a lady. I don't know who Johnny Young is. No, it's an old lady named Johnny Young. And in Canada, no one knew what the fuck I was talking about. Now you go back and realize that she had this huge career. And it was just, it just was one of those cool stops on my journey to be able to say that I did it, you know, and you're watching her in the documentary when she's trying to splash guys off the ropes. Yeah. And like, just, <laughs> yeah. But she used to babysit Vince, right? Yeah. You know, she used to babysit Vince. And then, I mean, I have had, you know, and my dad's guys that he used to wrestle that remember her in her early career. And they said that she'd be pulled up on a Harley smoking a cigar. <laughs> I have a son who's in his early thirties now. And, and so back then he was obviously just a toddler. And there were many times when, when Mula and Mae Young and myself and possibly Woody and my ex-wife uh, would go out, out to dinner together or out to lunch. And, and Mae would just have a, a, a field day, just bouncing my son who was just a little, little shaver then on, on her knee, you know, and <laughs> it's this side of her that you never saw. And, and, and Mula was the same way. And that's kind of a cool memory I have of those two. The other documentary we did where we, we talked to Michael Modest, who was on Beyond the Mat, he mentioned when he was started training, it was a, a shared gym between Woody Farmer and... Jerry Monty. Jerry, Jerry Monty. Jerry Monty. And Mae Young was there. And then so he would start, you know, somebody would be giving heat to him. And then she would say, that's not how you give heat. This is how you yeah. give heat. And she would jump on. And she would literally just start punching the shit until he had to cover up. Yeah. And she's like, see? See how he's covering up? That's how you know it's real heat. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, remember I remember talking to uh, to Pat Patterson one night. Pat was the best. I, I don't know if you guys ever had a chance to meet him from the area. But he was telling me, if I'm getting this wrong, you know, God bless him. He'll, he'll tell me in my dream. But something along the lines of May had a friend. And May was really wanting to have sex with one of the guys. But her friend was kind of spoiling it. So she asked Pat to take the girl and take care of her for May so that May could go get laid. And Pat's like, I, I, I'm gay. She's like, I took one for the <laughs> team. So Pat banged May's friend just so that oh. May could get laid. That night. So that's the type of friend I am. Let's talk about a few of some of the other guys that we see in the documentary. Another great character was, was radical Robbie Lee. This is kind of a George, the animal steel type character that we have kind of tell me about him. Um, and was he the silly string guy or was that the mask mask was the silly string guy. Okay. So first tell us about Robbie Lee. Then tell us about the mask. Robbie Lee wanted to get into professional wrestling. He and a guy who ended up being his tag team partner uh, were in a bar one night and they ran into Hawk and Animal, the Road Warriors, God rest. And they were saying they wanted to be professional wrestlers. And uh, of course, you, you know Hawk and Animal. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, no, no, we're serious. And, uh, and they go, yeah, well, you got to go to school. And like many people, 
that ended up at Woody's school, they saw the show on TV, and here's the number to call, and they called that number, and Robbie was one of those guys, as we discussed earlier, Chris, who kind of got the psychology side of things, and nobody used the word psychology back then in, in, in the, the mid to late 80s, but he knew that he had to have what they call the USP, the unique selling point of a ring persona. So he looked at who he liked at the time. He knew he wanted to be crazy, and he knew he wanted to be heel. So he looked at George the Animal Steel, and he looked at Bruiser Brody. Bruiser Brody, by the way, was a great friend of Woody's. And he kind of did a mashup of those two and came up with Radical Robbie Lee. And I'd never seen anything like that before. There's a snippet of the interviews, of one of the interviews I did with, they were always just hilarious. It was uh, it was all I could do not to crack up. But but his interviews were, were just over. Yeah. And he was over with the fans. Like, he would come out, let's see what this clown's going to do now. He thinks he can wrestle, and, 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 and he's a buffoon. Let's see what <laughs> happens. He had the fans in the palm of his hand, in his matches, just through that character that he created. Some of those guys saw that and had the ability and others had to be coached. Yeah, and that's the thing. I mean, once again, when you have guys, and I, that's what I used to really love about territory wrestling, whether it be Stampede Wrestling or in Winnipeg where I grew up, there was a small company. There was one in Vancouver. There was one in Montreal. You would see guys that were just trying because if you were, you know, six foot five, 280 pounds of muscle that's a different style you know if you're if you're like shane cody and you're a hard-hitting cowboy that's a different style some guys don't have any anything so what am i going to do i'll i'll put a mask on and spray silly string and do good promos or whatever it be and you could find guys that would never you knew they would never make it but they would be great for the local tv show it would help round up the roster yeah exactly right there, there there's a couple of guys that i've worked with uh in the business and the different television shows that I've done, uh, one individual I can think of right now, and I'm not going to mention his name because he is a dear, dear friend of mine and actually a buddy of mine, old school buddy of mine, trained him. And he's he's got the size, he's got the physique, he's got the moves, he's got the athleticism, and, and he's got the ability to tell a story in the ring with his athleticism, which all the great performers do, like yourself, Chris. But he just has never grasped the correct psychology mm-hmm. for how he looks and how he talks. I just pray to God that he does that someday because he, he's working all the time, but he would be a major star like you if he had that intangible. Right. If he had, because it, it can't be taught, but if he had that or he absorbs it or it, the light goes on for him at some point in his career, he'll be a major star, but he's kind of stuck. But once again, that's why Barrier Wrestling was such an important company. You know, you could go and try and learn. And like I said, for me, just being there and, and uh, working with different guys. Like when you, I was working in Calgary and Winnipeg, and you see the same, you know, 20 guys or whatever it may be. Going to Hayward and working with Shane and Handsome Al and Spanish Hitman, it was three different guys with different levels of experience that knew nothing about me and I knew nothing about them. So it wasn't like we had worked out high spots in training or anything. We just went in there and did it. And that was one of the first examples for me of, of, of that, especially in a country where, where you could speak the same language, you know, and it was really cool. Like, oh, wow, there's other guys out there that can do this. It was, it was very cool. 
Yeah, yeah I mean, even getting into the business, I mean, Chris, even when you come in, you know, and I've been wrestling for a few years and so have you, but you could always tell somebody that's going to go somewhere or has a lot of potential. Mm -hmm. And it's like when I worked with you, you was very smooth and easy. Mm -hmm. And you could always tell this guy got potential, he's going to go somewhere or he's going to be somebody someday. Mm -hmm. So someone is in there clumsy and, and they're tripping all over themselves. And even like even when my dad had to school, just watching the guys train a couple of months down down the road and stuff, they've been training, and you tell this this guy has potential. This guy ain't going nowhere. He's just wasting his time, mm -hmm. you know. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I like the yeah. story that you said, Pat, where you and Alan Bolte were sitting there going, "Oh, this Jericho guy looks like he might do something." <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's good to yeah, know. I'm glad you thought that. It's yeah. like the cheesy line in a biopic that, like, you say, no, nah, that doesn't seem real, and then they said it. But so. did you do that? You covered up the mic and just said, like, in the movies, just like, hey, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Someone else who had great potential and did make it to the big leagues that you mentioned earlier was Mike Lockwood, a.k.a. Crash Holly, another brother who's not with us anymore, unfortunately. But kind of tell us a little bit about his story, because that's the one thing I remember when I first met him. He was like, yeah, I, I was in Bay Area wrestling. I was like, really? That's awesome. Like, there's another one of us who made it to the next step. You know, it's, it's pretty cool to see. So how did he get involved? Oh, he's, uh, he's another one that was... Um he was from Pacifica. He came over. He heard about the school. Came over, started training. I just remember I just used to beat the crap out of that kid, <laughs> and he just kept on coming back and coming back and coming back. And he had the drive. He he was hungry. He wanted to be a professional wrestler. Right. And you know he did the tapings. After my dad shut down, he went to a couple other places. But when WWE RF coming was coming in the town, he was always hanging out. That's right. Mm -hmm. Always hanging out, and they're putting you know wording in this and that, and then they gave him the chance, and after that it was just history. I mean, it just went to the top. Yeah, we used to see him at uh, All Pro Wrestling, uh, the famous Gym Wars shows they had that they featured him beyond the mat wrestling guys like Vic Grimes, who's like much bigger than him, right. just bumping him around like crazy. And uh, we actually got to know him pretty well when he came back from the WWE. Uh, he worked for Pro Wrestling Iron. Uh, Michael Modest promotion here in in uh, the Bay Area. Me and Jesus were doing video production for them. He was one of the last shows he worked was a Lucha Libre show that Jesus put on. He was a guest referee at this Lucha Libre show in San Francisco. Yeah, he was going to rekindle his uh, feud with Vic Grimes, and they were booked to work a match together again. But unfortunately, he he didn't make it. He he passed three months after that show. Well, it's one of those things too, like just kind of going back to how he was able to make it in WWE. Is like a lot of times what's the role that they're trying to fit? They were looking for a guy to be Bob Holly's kind of up and coming little brother or whatever it was. And here's this guy. There could be other guys like you're, like you mentioned, Pat, like your guy that could be six foot five to 80 and there's never a spot. So Mike was perfect for that role. And what he did that was really, really smart. And it's the secret to wrestling is he embraced the character that he was given. He committed a thousand percent and went for it, you know? And, and you bring up a great point about him, Chris, because I, this is just as a, what I was thinking and talking about. Mikey is you saw the commitment he had and you saw that tremendous work ethic. And I just knew that he was going to make it in the business. Now at what level I did not know. I didn't have that crystal ball. But mm. I knew just from working with him, you'd say, okay, we need uh, seven minutes in this match against Spanish Hitman, and here's the finish. Okay. You'd, well, here's, and then now here's what we need you to do to the, in this promo. Okay, let's do it. Mm -hmm. And 
that was the attitude. And he backed it up with that energy and, and that kind of raw talent that he had. And then, like you say, when then WWF was looking for a Crash Holly, there yeah. he was. He was almost tailor-made yep. for the character. Do you want a beautiful lawn? Enter True Green, the easiest way to get a great lawn. Just water and mow and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and more. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. And they have a verified best price, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com, T-R-U-G-R-E-E-N.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people. Guaranteed. One thing I really liked about about the the documentary, uh, and I remember reading about it years ago, was when uh, Shane, when you had a six man tags with your dad and your son, and what a cool experience that must have been. Yeah, you know, uh, and like I said in the documentary, uh, you know, Kurt White, you know, uh, promoter of big time wrestling, he's we were just all sitting around, and he goes, "You guys should do the three generation," you know, it didn't even click, you know. Yeah. Never thought of this the whole time. So we threw my kid in the, the ring for three months and threw him in the uh, match. And uh, it was right there. It was three generations that never been done. You guys had like what, four matches? You four, four matches. Four, matches. yeah. And then the fourth match, we ended up having a riot. And uh, <laughs> the guy we were wrestling against uh, panicked, grabbed my kid on a belly to the back suplex and suplexed him on the hardwood floor. And that was it. <laughs> yeah, kid was done. <laughs> uh, that must have been such a great moment for Woody as well to kind of uh, appreciate that. Yeah, it, it was great, Chris. I mean, uh, get to wrestle with your dad and your son, and uh, your your dad's still getting juice at seventy two years old. <laughs> yeah, seventy two. And I, I, I was at, I was at one of those where Alan Bolte was the ring announcer, and they, uh, you know, Shane called me up, Woody called me up, and invited me over, and we're doing this three generations, and 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 by then I had helped start a company in the Pacific Northwest, and so I was flying up there once a month and and spending a few days up there, and and. Uh, uh, and I said, God, this is gold. This is this is just a great idea. <laughs> and it, it was the main, and and I think it was the Ballard brothers, and uh, I forgot who they uh, who the, who their third guy was. But it was magic. It was just great, and it was just over with the fans. They, they, they it was uh, it was a right mix at a right time. But you know, Chris, you know, growing up, not thinking that you're going to be end up being a wrestler, and then you get in the business, and then. You know, you get to travel with your dad down the road and you get to wrestle with him, against him. Uh, <laughs> you know, like you said, the three generation. What a great time and a lot of good memories with him. Yeah. You know, you know everybody wishes they could turn the clock back, but I sure do wish I could turn it back again, you know. <laughs> yeah, sure. And we were in Murdoch with Texas. And we were in Texas <laughs> with Murdoch and he bought a case of beer yeah, and yeah. then we had to go to the next town. Yeah. And, yeah. <laughs> uh, as, as we start to wind down here, his name's been mentioned a few times and I don't know when I'll ever get a chance to talk about him again on the podcast. You mentioned Kirk White. Kirk's been a guy that, that – I've known for years, anytime you come to Northern California and San Francisco area, San Jose signings, he's a promoter. When I'm trying to get some stuff working with Bret Hart, you call Kirk, who is his longtime representative. Kind of talk about Kirk a bit, what he meant to the whole Northern California Bay Area wrestling scene. Chris, he was, he was my best friend. He was oh, like wow. a big brother know. to me. 
He brought so much joy to families in the Bay Area over the last 25 years. He opened a door to so many people that wanted a dream to become wrestlers. He had a wrestling school that brought so many dreams to wrestlers to becoming wrestlers. Such a great man. It's still a shock for everybody. I just talked to him a day before he left. It's just really sad. He just he was just such an awesome man and he did so much for everybody here in the Bay Area. Yeah. Yeah, I know for me, I was, you know, a 16, 17-year-old kid. I was doing his website for Big Time Wrestling. And, you know, at this time, my only experience with wrestling was watching on television. And every once in a while, my cousin would take me to local wrestling shows and we would see the big names, quote unquote. And, you know, for a 16, 17 year old kid who's watching, you know, WrestleMania, now I'm in a position where I'm with Bret Hart backstage and I have to ask him like, oh, can we take some photos? <laughs> like, and all of a sudden I'm like backstage with all these guys. It was because of him that when I was a kid, I met Owen Hart at an autograph signing, which is like one of my favorite memories ever. The Undertaker, all these big names that you never, you never think you would get a chance to meet, let alone work with. And right. I know Jesus. Yeah. Since I was the uh, same age as Paul, Kirk gave us the go ahead to film all his shows uh, since 97. And yeah, it just gave us, there's, we're like, Teenage kids with a public access show with Stone Cold, with Owen Hart, with Undertaker, <laughs> D'Lo Brown, Val Venus, Al Snow. And, you know, it's like we're in heaven right now, you know. We mm-hmm. pretty much never grew up, and that's why we're still doing, doing all the video <laughs> production for the wrestlers right now. And, and God bless Kirk, like we said. But, but uh, just a few more things. When you're talking about the documentary did, and you put this together, was the idea always just to put it on YouTube? Or are you looking to try and find a wider audience for it somehow? Uh, for the time it was just YouTube, we're still pretty small and we're, you know, a lot of the stories are, are Bay Area centric, but uh, obviously it has a, a wider uh, uh, response, you know, uh, than what we originally thought. So, yeah, eventually we want to start, you know, branching out a little bit more, more mainstream. So we do have uh, one project we are working on. We are, we are trying to get some funding going. We're trying to do a documentary about Mark Bison Smith. He was a wrestler who wrestled in Northern California. He wrestled for Pro Wrestling Noah. He wrestled mm. for IWA Puerto Rico. He was a champion there and in Noah. He was in the tag match with Misawa when Misawa died. Wow. Um, and he died uh, at the age of 41 in Puerto Rico. And he was, it was a really tragic story of a really, really great man that mm. uh, really could have, you know, he was six foot four, built like a brick shit house, just like a total beast of a human being that could have been a lot bigger, even though he made some good strides in Japan and Puerto in Puerto Rico. But Bison Smith is one project we're, we're looking at uh, working on right now. But we want to fly to Puerto Rico to interview some of the wrestlers down there. Mm-hmm. Uh, we've already made connections with some people with Noah. We're just trying to get as much as we can going because from the start when we wanted to make these documentaries, we wanted to showcase kind of the things that the average wrestling fan didn't always pay attention to. So like we did Michael Modest because most people think Michael Modest as, oh, that guy from Beyond the Mat. Mm-hmm. You know, he wrestled Tony Jones and then whatever happened to him. So we wanted to focus on him. Barrier Wrestling, you know, what was this? Oh, I remember seeing this YouTube video where Chris Jericho wrestled some guy in Newark. What, what was that? Oh, this is the story of that place. Mm-hmm, and then mm-hmm. Bison Smith is one of those guys where, you know, if you ever go back and watch some Misawa matches or any of these guys in Noah, you'll be like, dang, who's this giant blonde mohawk American? <laughs> like, who is this guy? And that's the guy we want to focus on next. So we've always been about kind of showcasing the untold or lesser known stories of, of indie wrestling. That's kind of what we – and you mentioned earlier – if you're trying to do something for the money, it's not going to work yeah, out. Yeah, 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 these yeah. are the things that we love, and that's why we want to concentrate on these things. 
It's interesting because there's been always such a great wrestling tradition in Northern California. And I never put two and two together. I just happened to be talking to Pam, to Bailey, a couple of days ago about something or other. And we were talking about Bay Area. I was like, why did I never think that you knew all of these guys? And then she took a video of you guys watching the documentary. Shane, you were in it. We, I got to see it for the first time in 30 years. It's just cool that there's always these big names that come from your area of the country that get into wrestling. And she's probably the, the flag bearer for the Bay area in wrestling right now. Yeah. You have Pam and you got another one that's uh, with you right now, Chris, uh, Aaron Solo. That's right. Yeah, that's true. Another Bay area brother. So yeah, we got um, Hobbs, of course. Yeah, that's right. That's right. A lot of you guys, but what is the best match that you think ever happened in Bay area wrestling? Is there one that stands out? Oh, it had to be one with Shane Cody. <laughs> Is it Chris Jericho and Shane Cody? I think that's it. Well, I think that's it. I think that's where it peaked. Yeah, that was it. <laughs> that's funny. What was your favorite match that you ever had, Shane? Because I know you had a, a, a career outside of Bay Area as well. Wow, there's there's just so many. I had so many. Uh, the Ballard brothers, mm. uh, Johnny Starr, Danny Garcia. There, there was quite a few, so many good matches that, that came out of Barrier Wrestling. Watching the Johnny Pearson uh, uh, Crouch Holly matches, I really like because he's dude's really smooth. He's really he flows. He's got the charisma. Uh, I really enjoy watching those matches back. Last question is, what's your final kind of thought on, on Bay Area wrestling as a whole? And I'll, I'll start. Watching the documentary was a blast because, like I said, I think one of you guys said earlier, a great a, a moment in time that was very important to a lot of people for that two- or three-year time frame that it was open. And it was, it was only three matches for me, but it was very integral in a lot of ways, not only from what happened directly but indirectly like i said just going to another place and showing up in a locker room as a total stranger you know you learn life lessons from doing things like that and when i think of bay Area wrestling i think like i would smile because my hair was terrible but the smile and the experience was awesome so that's kind of my overall thought about bay area wrestling how about for yeah, you I guys a couple of years ago uh Bailey sent you that video and you made a remark about your hair. <laughs> it's an awkward stage. It's like, yeah. you know, the page boy. Yeah. Right? <laughs> what, what do you think, Pat? What's kind of your thoughts on, on Bay Area? Well, you know, talking about hair, I would love to have hair like that again. <laughs> like uh, <laughs> that was that was just a few moons ago. Outside of everything else we've talked about, about working with Mula and Mae Young, the one thing that stands out in my memory is uh, Johnny Starr and Shane Cody. And I, I, I'm not saying it's, it's the best wrestling. It was just the best feud. It was presented uh, as a storyline to the fans in such a way that it was over. You know, it was like watching Ray Stevens getting beat by Pepper Gomez at the Cow Palace in right. 1966. You know, oh, Shane Cody finally got his. Oh, look, and he's not getting <laughs> the belt. Him and Laurie are taking away with the belt. So Johnny Starr still doesn't have the belt, but he's the champion. That... That memory stands out to me the most. How about you, Paul? Yeah, a, lot, a lot of good memories out of there. Yeah. Uh, a lot of good memories. I'm just look, uh, looking forward to sharing more stories 
uh, from the Bay Area, from the players in the Bay Area. It's kind of cool that we get to immortalize all these people that we've interviewed and, you know, people in the past, show them the history of uh, Bay Area wrestling. And we want to thank you, Chris, for uh, putting the documentary over, for never forgetting where you come from. Like, even a couple of years ago when uh, Paco Alonso uh, passed away and I saw that you posted about Paco on, uh, on mm-hmm. your Twitter, that was really beautiful. That was really cool. So, yeah, thank you for always giving back to wrestling. No, he's, he, Chris has done good. He's reached out to wrestlers that's in bad times and stuff absolutely yeah the main thing is that you know they always say you always want to pop the boys that's that's the people who really matters you pop the boys in the back then it's the best the best is the the feedback we've got not from fans but from people who are workers people who are workers now like people like levi shapiro who's uh he wrestles for championship wrestling in hollywood and he's a younger wrestler but he loves the old school style and he Mm -hmm. was more happy about this documentary than anyone else and he's you know (laughs) he's like maybe late 20s early 30s and he was so like excited for it so i love I love the wrestlers that appreciate it and want to learn more about the history that, you know, the, of the business that they're in. Well, the documentary does that. Woody Farmer's Bay Area Wrestling on YouTube. And um, great talking to you guys, man. And great seeing you, Pat and Shane. It's been, like you said, almost 30 years. That's insane. That's way too long. But uh, it's good to talk to you guys again and remember those days. You know, Shane Cody's still wrestling if you want a rematch and try to get that yeah, win back. Yeah, a 30-year 30 30 year rematch. <laughs> you kidding me? I still got a bump from the cowbell. I'll be the guest ring announcer. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Thank you, guys. It's been a pleasure Thank talking you, Chris. to you, Thank man. you for everything. Thanks, Chris. Thanks, bro. Okay, Thank you. Right. Take care, guys. Thank you. All right. Bye. Bye.